This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. And may I welcome you to uh, another year of, um, I hope, exciting programming for the Herman P. and Sophia uh, Taubman Endowed um, Symposium in Jewish Studies. Um, I'm still Richard Hecht. <laughs> I haven't changed. Um, and as many of you know, I'm professor of religious studies, and for 19 years, I have been the uh, program committee's chair uh, for the Taubman Symposia. Um, that program committee is made up of uh, of people from the university as well as from the community and the integration of community and faculty from UCSB makes the committee I think relatively unique on this campus and every year that committee sets out what the programs are and over the years as some of you will know from being in, uh, at these um, presentations in the past we have always tried to highlight historical moments in the history of the Jewish people and consequently, November 2nd, which we've just gone by, 2017, uh, will be the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. And in our spring meeting, the program committee said, we have to give highlight to this event in the history of the Jewish people. And uh, we began planning that, um, and we found the person who could speak to the period before Balfour in November of 1917 better than anyone in the entire United States. His name is Professor Jonathan Gribbets, as all of you know, uh, and he is the author of this extraordinary book entitled Defining Neighbors, Religion, Race, and the Early Zionist Arab Encounter published by Princeton University Press. And thanks to our friends at uh, the Book Den, we have copies of this uh, if you would like to purchase it. And Jonathan, at the end of the lecture today, will be most happy and delighted to talk with you and perhaps sign uh, a copy of the book. The book is fantastic. It's fantastic because it tells a story uh, a little-known story of relations between Jews and Zionists and uh, Arabs uh, in a critical moment in the history of both of these people. Um, few books achieve the nearly universal acclaim that Jonathan's book has received. Um, on the back of it, you find all these blurbs, and some of them are quite long. Some of us uh, who are faculty members are always asked to blur books, and we usually write one sentence. And the um, editors say, you can only write one sentence. Um, but there are some long comments, and I want to read you only one, um, by Derek Penzler, um, who is, I think, one of the senior people in Israel studies, who writes of this book the following... It is, in his words, an erudite and engaging uh, study of how racial and religious categories could unite as well as divide Jews and Arabs in the early 20th century Palestine. 
Gribbets offers close, insightful readings of Jewish and Arab intellectuals who imagine themselves as neighbors as well as adversaries and who, while producing apologetic depictions of their own cultures, communicated in a shared and cultural language. And Penzler concludes his blurb by saying, this book is a fascinating, and I love that, fascinating recovery of neglected voices that are strikingly relevant for our own time, end quote from Derek Penzler. So we have an extraordinary individual who has come from New York City. He told me he woke up at, he left his house at three in the morning to get here. Um, That's how dedicated he is as a wonderful teacher and scholar. So we have a wonderful opportunity with uh, Professor Jonathan Gribbets. So please, let's welcome him to Santa Barbara. Wow. I should just go home now. It is a great pleasure to join you here today at UC Santa Barbara and a true honor to participate in the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Foundation Endowed Symposia in Jewish Studies. I am most grateful to Professor Richard Hecht for extending this gracious invitation and now this outrageous introduction and to the Taubman Symposia staff for coordinating my visit. Most of all, I am delighted that you all have taken the time to join me here today and to come inside during such beautiful weather. Okay. Many of you probably read about the controversy last month over the resolution on occupied Palestine passed by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. This resolution, submitted, as you see, by Algeria, Egypt, Lebanon, Morocco, Oman, Qatar, and Sudan, condemned a variety of Israeli government, military, and civilian actions at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Al-Haram al-Sharif, and called upon Israel to, as you see, respect the integrity, authenticity, and cultural heritage of Al-Aqsa Mosque Al-Haram al-Sharif as reflected in the historic status quo as a Muslim holy site of worship and as an integral part of a world cultural heritage site. Israeli officials were quick to note that the area UNESCO named Al-Aqsa Mosque Al-Haram al-Sharif has another name as well, Har Habayit, the Temple Mount, and that Israeli Jews have deep historic connections to that mount beyond their current role mentioned repeatedly by the UNESCO resolution as the occupying power. The Israeli government thus accused UNESCO of attempting to undermine and delegitimize the Jews' historic link to the Temple Mount, a small space that serves as a synecdoche for Jerusalem and stands in ultimately for the entire land of Israel. This debate over the UNESCO resolution 
is in fact just the latest of a long series of claims of delegitimization on both sides of the Arab-Israeli conflict. All of you here are likely familiar with the claims. There is no such thing as a Palestinian, some Israelis and Israel supporters assert. Contemporary Jews are merely ethnic Europeans with no connection to the Holy Land, some Palestinians and their supporters allege. There were hardly any Arabs in Palestine before the Zionists arrived, and by developing the economy, attracted mass Arab immigration, we hear from some Zionist circles. Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. That was the official position of the United Nations General Assembly for the decade and a half between 1975 and 1991. Or the assumption that, at root, Palestinian nationalism is nothing more than anti-Semitism. That underlies a fair bit of pro-Israel discourse. In other words, the claims and counterclaims of delegitimization that we saw last month concerning the UNESCO resolution were part of a longer series of such claims that developed in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And yet, to borrow a phrase from this discourse, what we are witnessing now is not a condition that existed from time immemorial. I want to take us back to a time not so long ago when the authenticity of the claims of the other was treated with more respect, taken more seriously, even when those claims or their supposed political implications were not accepted wholesale. As a scholar of the intellectual encounter between Zionists and Arabs in and around the Holy Land from the rise of Zionism in the 19th century through the late 20th century, I invite you to join me today on a journey back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Palestine. Over a century ago, we might suppose, in retrospect, Jews and Arabs would have been more likely than they are now to question and dismiss the claims of the other. After all, we've now had more than a hundred years of encounter, of time for Jews and Arabs to get to know one another, to learn about each other's histories, to come to respect the other's commitments and sense of connection to the Holy Land. A century earlier, we might think, it would have been more natural for Jews coming from Europe with a, a deep sense of returning to their ancient homeland, but knowing little about that land's contemporary condition, to have questioned the authenticity of the claims of Arabs that they were genuinely, fundamentally connected to and rooted in this place. And before a century of learning about Zionism and getting to know Zionists, Arabs we might imagine, would have been more inclined to question the claims of foreign newcomers that they had some deep historic connection to their land. And yet, in some senses, nearly the opposite has been the case. Questioning the historicity and sincerity of the other's connection to Palestine, to the land of Israel, is a phenomenon that has become more prominent, not less, over time. 
In my talk today, I would like to share with you three sets of sources, texts written in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that illuminate some of the fascinating complexities of the early encounter between Zionists and Arabs in Palestine. These texts show that the late Ottoman period in Palestine, right, the period that ended in 1917 when the British conquered Palestine, was neither an Arab-Jewish utopia destined to produce perfect, blissful coexistence were it not for the British conquest during World War I, nor was the late Ottoman period exactly what we see now, a seemingly intractable, violent, religio-nationalist, zero-sum territorial conflict just a hundred years earlier. The reality was, as it generally is, much more complicated and much more interesting. The first set of texts I would like to share consists of a letter written in 1899 and a speech given in 1905. The letter was written by this man, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi, mayor of Jerusalem and a one-time representative of, Jerus of Jerusalem in uh, the first short-lived um, uh, Ottoman parliament. Al-Khalidi was a member of an elite Palestinian Sunni Arab family from Jerusalem that, among other things, owned and still does property just steps away from the chain gate entrance to Al-Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary or Temple Mount. In 1899, having heard about the Zionist organization founded a couple years earlier, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi sent a letter to Tzadok Khan, the chief rabbi of France, who passed the letter on to Theodore Herzl himself, the founder of the Zionist organization. In the letter, al-Khalidi begins with an assertion of Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish Arab commonality. He writes, All those who know me well know that I don't make a distinction between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. I'm always inspired by the sublime words of your prophet Malachi. Isn't it that we all have a common father? Isn't it the same God who created us all? Concerning the Jews, I, says Al-Khalidi, take these words at their very sense, because besides that I estimate the Jews' high moral and intellectual values, I consider them truly like a parent to us Arabs, for they are our cousins. We really have the same father, Abraham, from whom we also descend. There are many affinities between the two races. We almost have the same language. Politically, by the way, I am convinced that Jews and Arabs would do well in supporting each other to be able to resist the invasion of other races. Employing a mix common at the time of racial and religious language, Al-Khalidi insists that Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and Jews and Arabs, are closely linked by common ancestors, related languages, even certain shared political interests. But then Al-Khalidi reaches the issue of Zionism. The idea of Zionism in itself is only natural, beautiful, and just. Who can contest the rights of the Jews 
to Palestine. My God, historically, it's your country, he says to Tzadok Khan. And what marvelous spectacle it would be if the Jews so endowed would be reconstituted again into one independent, respected, happy nation who would be able to serve poor humanity in moral issues like before. Al-Khaladi's letter, however, was not accompanied by a payment of dues to the Zionist organization, no. Rather, Al-Khaladi penned this letter to express his strong opposition to the movement because notwithstanding the element of historical justice that the return of Jews to Palestine might entail, unfortunately, he writes, the destinies of nations are not governed only by abstract conceptions as pure and as noble they might be. One must take into account also reality, acquired facts, powers, yes, the brutal force of circumstances. The reality is that Palestine now, he says in 1899, is an integral part of the Turkish Empire. And what is more important, it is inhabited by others than the Jews. This reality, the acquired facts, this brutal force of circumstances do not leave to Zionism, geographically speaking, any hope of realization. And what is more important is a real danger to the situation of the Jews in Turkey. Al-Khalidi warns that Zionism has the potential to spark violence against Jews throughout the Ottoman Empire by people Al-Khalidi calls fanatics, filled with what he calls racial hate, and by people Al-Khalidi identifies as fanatic Christians, who, he says, never let pass an occasion to increase the hate of the Muslims against the Jews. All of this leads Al-Khalidi to call upon Chief Rabbi Khan and through him, Theodore Herzl, to find an uninhabited place to establish a Jewish nation state. That would be a lovely idea, but by God, leave Palestine alone. Among the many intriguing aspects of this text, what I would like to highlight here is that Al-Khalidi's political opposition to Zionism did not rely on questioning the legitimacy of Jewish historic claim of connect of the Jewish historic claim of connection to Palestine, nor of the Jews' close relationship to Arabs. Despite these facts, and Al Khalidi perceived them to be facts, he ardently opposed Zionism. Excuse me. In Al Khalidi's words, Zionism was, in theory, perfectly just. It simply was not feasible or fair to those who were now living there, who were no less authentically and passionately connected to the land and dedicated to its sanctity. Okay. The text I pair with Al-Khalidi's letter is a speech delivered in 1905 by Yitzhak Epstein, a Russian-born Hebrew educator who had immigrated to Palestine in 1886 and settled in Rosh Pinah, a Zionist settlement in the Upper Galilee, near the holy city of Safed, of Tzfat, and just north of Lake Tiberias. Epstein gave his speech in the same city where the Zionist organization was founded eight years earlier, in Basel, Switzerland, where Epstein was 
then in 1905 participating in a Hebrew cultural meeting alongside the Seventh Zionist Congress. After causing a stir in Basel, the speech was published a couple years uh, later as an article called The Hidden Question in the Hebrew journal Hashiloach. The scholar Alan Doughty has produced an excellent edition and translation of this text, which I generally follow here. Epstein opened his speech with this bold claim. Among the difficult questions linked to the idea of the rebirth of our people on its land, there's one question that outweighs all the others, the question of our attitude toward the Arabs. Faithful Zionists, Epstein contends, have not dealt with the question of what our attitude to the Arabs should be when we buy property in the land of Israel to found villages and in general to settle the land. Epstein bemoans the fact that Zionists investigate all uh, the challenges associated with their project of immigration and settlement except the one challenge that matters most, the presence and interests of the Arabs who live there. We pay close attention to the affairs of our land, he writes. We discuss and debate everything. We praise and curse everything. But we forget one small detail, that there is in, that there is in our beloved land an entire people that has been attached to, has clung to it for hundreds of years and has never considered leaving it. Epstein notes that while Zionists had always purchased land from its legal owners, that the Zionists obeyed the law in acquiring land, those who had been living on and working the land, the felahin, the peasant farmers, who did not technically own the land, but were tenant farmers, at least since the mid-19th century, were kicked off the fields that they and their ancestors had sown for generations. In general, warns Epstein, we are making a flagrant error in human understanding toward a great, resolute, and zealous people. While we feel the love of homeland in all its intensity toward the land of our fathers, we forget that the people living there now also has a feeling heart and a loving soul. The Arab like any person, is strongly attached to his homeland. Recalling the exodus of the, uh, of the Arab villagers of El Jauna, the uh, village from which the lands of Rosh Pina, where um, Epstein was living, were initially purchased, Epstein explained, the lament of, of the Arab women on the day that their families left El Jauna, Rosh Pina, to go and to settle uh, on the Horan and Golan and uh, 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 other side of the Jordan, east of the Jordan, still rings in my ears today. The men rode on donkeys and the women followed them weeping bitterly and the valley was filled with their lamentation. As they went, they stopped to kiss the stones and the earth. I pair Epstein's speech with Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi's uh, letter because like Epstein, excuse me, like Al-Khalidi, Epstein at once accepted the legitimacy and genuineness of the other's historic connection to the Holy Land, even as he insisted that his own people's connection was no less legitimate. 
as biting as was Epstein's critique of the way some Zionists treated Palestine's Arabs and failed to take seriously their attachment to the land, Epstein remained an active and passionate Zionist, believing fully in the Jewish people's right to return to their homeland and arguing for a covenant, a brit, between Arabs, whom he had once respected and also viewed patronizingly, and Jews in the land of Israel for the better of all. I am averse to the idea that in our land we need to grovel and submit to the Arab inhabitants, writes Epstein. But with courage and strength, we can gain their respect and dwell securely in our settlements. But we will sin against ourselves and our future if we thoughtlessly cast away our best weapon, the justice of our action and the innocence of our ways. So long as we cling to these, we are heroes and will fear no one. But if we discard them, our power and our heroism are worth nothing. To be clear, there are significant differences between Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi's letter and Epstein's speech. Not least that al-Khalidi calls for the Jews to leave Palestine alone, while Epstein imagines Jewish-Arab national coexistence in the land of Israel. Epstein, after all, wanted to change the status quo of power in Palestine. Al-Khalidi wanted to retain uh, that status quo. My point here is not to equate these two positions, but to highlight that neither Al-Khalidi nor Epstein felt it necessary to delegitimize or to question the integrity or, or authenticity of the deep attachments their counterparts had toward the land of Israel, toward Palestine, toward the Holy Land. Each understood and sympathetically accepted those claims as he thought through the possibilities for the future of Palestine, of the land of Israel. Let me now move to the second pairing I would like to share with you from, the pre -world, from pre World War I Palestine. In this case, the pairing is not one that I have heuristically devised, but rather one that emerges from a historical face to face encounter, an interview that took place in Jerusalem in October 1909 between a Lithuanian-born Jew, Eliezer ben Yehuda, and the nephew of the man I just spoke about, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi, another Jerusalem-born Muslim-Arab intellectual named Muhammad Ruhi al-Khalidi. Eliezer ben Yehuda uh, was born Eliezer Yitzchak Perelman um, in a Lithuanian village uh, in the Russian Empire to a Hasidic Jewish family. He received the standard young Jewish boy's education in a cheder um, before leaving to study in a yeshiva. Uh, in the yeshiva, Perelman um, was exposed not only to Talmudic literature, then the core of uh, the Jewish man's curriculum, but also clandestinely to secular and linguistic writings in Hebrew. And he was hooked. In 1878, he traveled to Paris to continue his secular studies. He lived in Paris for four years, during which he came to espouse a form of Jewish nationalism focused on the land of Israel and the Hebrew language. And he signed his first major published essay on the subject with the name Eliezer ben Yehuda, uh, the son of Yehuda or Judah, a name then he used um, from that point forward. In 1881, 
he immigrated to Palestine and settled in Jerusalem, where, from the start, he engaged in Hebrew journalism. At first, he found employment on the staff of an existing Hebrew newspaper, Chavatzelet. As soon, though, he founded his own newspaper, which, uh, over the years, had different names, Hatzvi, you'll see Hatzvi in a moment, Haor, um, and Hashkafa. Ben Yehuda's uh, papers were generally edited by him and his family, especially his wife, uh, um, Chemda, uh, second wife, and his son, uh, Itamar Ben Avi. Uh, ben Avi having the double meaning of the son of my father, but also the son of Eliezer Ben Yehuda, the acronym f- uh, of which is Avi. Uh, in conjunction with his Hebrew journalism, Ben Yehuda also aimed to help transform Hebrew from only a written language, or mainly a written language, into one of daily spoken use. But it was in his role as a journalist, not a linguist, that nearly three decades after his immigration to Palestine, Ben Yehuda met with his partner in the conversation I'd like to consider here, Muhammad Ruhi al-Khalidi. Al-Khalidi, known by his second name, Ruhi, grew up in the same area of Jerusalem's old city as his uncle, the Khalidis, as I, as I alluded to, uh, were one of a small number of elite Sunni Muslim Arab families in Ottoman Jerusalem that played central roles in the economic, political, and religious life of the holy city. Ruhi was educated in uh, Sunni religious schools in Jerusalem, uh, the Mufti, one of the Muftis of Jerusalem, the Shafi'i Mufti of Jerusalem, um, certified that Al Khalidi had. Uh, completed training in all the classical subjects of the Islamic curriculum. He continued his religious studies in Nablus, in Tripoli, and Beirut, as his father Yassin took upon um, uh, various uh, Ottoman-appointed religious positions um, in these different cities. By age 15, Al-Khalidi had been granted a scholarly title in the Ottoman Islamic religious hierarchy by none other than the Sheikh al-Islam in uh, Istanbul. If Al-Khalidi's education began in a distinctly religious context, it soon extended into realms beyond traditional pious training. And in a sense, his experience can be seen as a sort of parallel to that of Ben Yehuda. As Al-Khalidi began... um, uh, became a young man. He acquired those elements of a Western education that began to uh, be offered in the new Ottoman state schools. And even at the Jewish Alliance Israelite Universelle, the AIU school in Palestine, where he apparently studied briefly, perhaps learned some Hebrew too. El Khalidi's secular studies began in Palestine, but they continued with much greater intensity when he left the Levant. In 1887, at age 23, Al-Khalidi went to the Ottoman capital, Istanbul, uh, where he studied at uh, the School of Civil Service. Following more than six years of study in Istanbul, Al-Khalidi, now nearly 30, traveled to Paris, from which Ben Yehuda had migrated just six years earlier, where Al-Khalidi undertook a three-year course in political science and then enrolled at the Sorbonne. Under some of the most uh, distinguished French Orientalists of the day, he studied the philosophy of Islam and Eastern literature. Al-Khalidi even went on to a brief career uh, as an academic in France, teaching Arabic to students and scholars of Oriental studies. In 1898, the year after 
um, the first Zionist Congress and the year before his uncle sent that letter to um, Rabbi Khan, Ruhi al-Khalidi transitioned from academia to politics, taking up the position of uh, Ottoman consul general in Bordeaux. In 1908, the year of the Young Turk Revolution in the Ottoman Empire, uh, he returned to Palestine in a bid to represent the province of Jerusalem uh, in the new, uh, newly reconstituted Ottoman parliament. Ben Yehuda had the opportunity to interview two of Jerusalem's three representatives in the parliament, Said al-Husseini and Ruhi al-Khalidi. Introducing his reports of these interviews, Ben Yehuda wrote, I quote, I want to hear from them before they, I wanted to hear from them, from these two representatives, before they departed back to Istanbul, uh, to, uh, to hear their thoughts on the status of matters in the empire generally, and I wanted in particular to hear their thoughts on and relations on the issue um, that most concern us, the Jews. I wanted to hear this in detail because I think that it is always preferable to know the state of the issue as it is, whether good or bad. Uh, after discussing a number of broader Ottoman imperial political matters with al-Khalidi, Ben Yehuda finally broached the difficult point, Hanikuta Hakasha. Ben Yehuda raised the matter of the so-called red paper, the Ottoman policy limiting the length of Jews' visits to Palestine, as an entree into the conversation about what he called the matter of Jews coming here. Ben Yehuda explains that he wanted to know what al-Khalidi would say on this issue in the Ottoman parliament. Ben Yehuda notes that with appreciation that al-Khalidi did not hold back his views, and Ben Yehuda deems it important to share them with his readers, even though, he writes, they're not particularly pleasant to us. In Ben Yehuda's report, and of course we must keep in mind that we do not have a transcript of this interview, um, but rather a report filtered through the mind and the pen of Ben Yehuda, al-Khalidi uh, um, reportedly said that in general, I think that, this is a quote, I think that the, or a quote from Ben Yehuda, uh, quoting al-Khalidi, uh, in general, I think that the brotherhood and the closeness between Jews and Arabs is most natural and most desired. Are we not truly brothers, close in family, spirit, religion, and language, and also somewhat in history? And you hear his uncle in this as well. Yet here, al-Khalidi turned more pessimistic and offered an early case, I would say, of the generally self-serving, always self-fulfilling, though never entirely wrong trope we know from the contemporary conflict in that Hebrew-English hybrid phrase, ein partner la shalom, there is no partner for peace. Sadly, he said, I do not see on the side of the Jews especially among the Ashkenazic Jews, and recall he was speaking to an Ashkenazic Jew, an inclination to come closer to us. I see the Germans, for example, or the Americans living in Palestine approaching us or assimilating or culturating with us. 
It's karvut is the Hebrew word he uses. Um, the Jews, and especially the Ashkenazic Jew, especially the Ashkenazic Jews, he, he says, are an entirely different world, and they do not come in contact with us. So we would like to be close to them, but they don't want to be close to us. Interestingly, El Khalendi agreed with Ben Yehuda. I'm sorry, this, I meant to show you this earlier. This is Hatzvi and uh, the beginning of the interview. Yeah, okay. Interestingly, El Khalidi agreed with Ben Yehuda that the red paper policy, right, that, uh, the limiting policy on uh, the length of stay of, uh, of um, Jews' stay in Palestine, should be canceled. For individual Jews, El Khalidi said to Ben Yehuda, the gates of the land must certainly be open without interference. However, to establish Jewish colonies, this is a different question. Al-Khalidi continued, the Jews have the financial ability and are able to buy much land and evict the, Arab from the, uh, the Arabs from their land and the inheritance of their ancestors. And here comes uh, what for me is one of the key lines of this encounter. We didn't conquer the land from you. Anu kavashnu et aretz lomikam, not from you. We conquered it from the Byzantines who were ruling it then. We owe nothing to the Jews. The Jews were not here at the time we conquered the land. Upon hearing Al-Khalidi's concern about the fate of the Falahin, about uh, the Arabs, um, uh, far, Arab farmers uh, due to Zionism, Ben Yehuda responded, according to his article, passionately and at length. Sorry, it's so small, but I'll, I'll read it. But sir, up until now, the Jews have purchased almost no property from the Felahim. Up to this point, they have only purchased from particular individuals who own the land, and mostly whose families own the land for decades, even before the Jews arrived here. What harm did the Jews cause to the Felahim in doing so? On the contrary, haven't the Felahim in the areas surrounding the Jewish colonies been enriched? Haven't the Jews been a model? Haven't the Felahim learned from the Jews advanced methods of agriculture that have improved their conditions? This land has, has, still has much land in the hands of rich individuals, lands from which the Arab Felahim have no benefit. These lands will suffice for many, many Jewish colonies. And what harm will this Jewish settlement bring even to the Felahim, let alone to the whole land, the land as a whole? Aren't the Jewish colonies net income for the state? Aren't they bringing new life to the land and to the Felahim? In Ben Yehuda's report of this interview, Ben Yehuda essentially had the last word. El Khalidi, according to Ben Yehuda, did not dispute Ben Yehuda's defense of Zionism as an economic benefit to the native Arab agricultural masses. Of course, I do not deny this. Al Khalidi apparently replied, but in any case, we will definitely take the necessary measures to, pre to prevent the fulfillment of the Zionists' big ideas. The conversation ended abruptly at this point, according to the report, when Al Khalidi's assistant entered to say uh, that the time had come for Al Khalidi's next appointment. What can we learn from this 1909 conversation? 
like his uncle, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi, Ruhi al-Khalidi acknowledged implicitly that the Jews had been in Palestine before the Arabs were Muslims. It's just that the Arabs and Muslims, quote, owe nothing to the Jews because the Jews were no longer in Palestine, or at least were no longer ruling Palestine and populating it en masse when the Arab Muslim forces arrived and conquered in the 7th century. While the Jews are historically linked to Palestine, it is not the Arabs' moral responsibility to facilitate the Jews' return to their homeland because, after all, the Arabs did not conquer the land from the Jews, but rather from the Byzantines. This position seems to be something of a logical parallel to the position articulated in the mid-20th century and later by Palestinian advocates who say, why should Palestinians pay the price for European anti-Semitism and the Holocaust? When he died in 1913, Ruhi al-Khalidi was in the process of preparing to publish a manuscript he had written called Zionism Ayal Masala Sahyonia, Zionism or the Zionist Question. In my book, Defining Neighbors, I devote a chapter to analyzing this fascinating manuscript. Given his interview with Ben Yehuda, you, you won't be surprised to learn that Al-Khalidi's book on Zionism was not what you would call a Zionist book. However, in the manuscript, Al-Khalidi made a serious effort, in my view, to understand Zionism and to present it honestly to his intended audience of Arabic readers. Listen to this line of the manuscript when Al-Khalidi explains the history of Jewish longing to return to the Holy Land. The captives in Babylonia demonstrated their abundant yearning for Zion and Jerusalem, wrote Al-Khalidi. No nation among the nations reached the Jews' height of grieving over their homeland and the degree of their longing for it, continued Al-Khalidi. Describing how the Jews wandered along the banks of the Euphrates, crying over Jerusalem and bewailing her uh, in poems and psalms, continues um, Al-Khalidi. In fact, it is precisely because the Jews and Judaism have been so singularly focused on the land of Israel, at least until the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, and Jewish emancipation, in Al-Khalidi's view, because the Jews before that had been so singularly focused on the land of Israel, it's because of that that Zionism must be taken so seriously and addressed with urgency. After all, writes Al-Khalidi, in the Jews' scripture, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, one does not find any bit of the reports of the pleasantness of paradise, nor of the torment of hell that appear in the Holy Quran, and no reports of the eternal life in the kingdom of heaven that appear in the Holy Gospels, but rather in the Hebrew Bible, all of the excitement, intimidation, fascination, warning, promise, and threats that appeared in that scripture are limited to Zion. Religious happiness in the Old Testament, he writes, is in possessing and ruling Zion and using foreigners to cultivate its land and herd its livestock and eat its general riches. And he has a biblical proof text for that too. If one doesn't take serious, if one 
doesn't take seriously the deep-rooted religious and enduring historical relationship between the Jews and the land of Israel, Al-Khalidi implies one is bound to underestimate, misunderstand, or entirely overlook the challenge that Zionism poses to Palestine's Arabs. For his part, Ben Yehuda, as we saw, made the case that, Epst- uh, that Epstein, a few years earlier, had tried to refute, namely that buying land from wealthy landowners does no harm to peasant farmers. Ben Yehuda, living as he did in Jerusalem, did not witness the forced relocation um, that often followed uh, such land purchases as Epstein, living up in the Galilee, did. Uh, while Ben Yehuda may, in retrospect, seem less forward-thinking or forward-looking than Epstein, it's nonetheless worth noting that Ben Yehuda made his case for the Jewish settlement project not by claiming that the Fellahin had no deep or genuine historical or sentimental connection to the lands they tilled, but rather that they were materially better off for the economic opportunities afforded to them by that Jewish settlement project. We might note that in this encounter, Al-Khalidi was concerned with long-term rights and obligations based in history. Ben Yehuda with contemporary mundane economics. This disconnect, this particular way of talking past one another, is, I would say, common in the history of the Jewish, of the Arab Zionist encounter, though not always along the same lines. When Zionists speak in the long term, say, of rights emanating from their ancestors' historic presence in the, land of, in the ancient land of Israel, Arabs may respond in the short term, who cares about ancient biblical history? Look what's happening right now. And as we see with Al-Khalidi and Ben Yehuda, the inverse can be true as well. When the Arab leader Al-Khalidi spoke with the long view, the Zionist Ben Yehuda responded with the shorter and more mundane view. Who cares about the 7th century? Look what's happening right now. Ben Yehuda insists at the end of his article that he has reported the conversation exactly as it took place because, as he puts it, quote, I think that there is no use in closing our eyes um, and stopping our ears. On the contrary, it is necessary to know the situation as it is. On the need to understand the facts of the situation, he and Al-Khalidi clearly agreed, even if they did not entirely agree on those facts. Okay, I'd like to turn now at, to the third and final set of texts of my talk today. This pair consists of numerous Arabic journal articles from the early 20th century, and I'll use one from 1913 as my example, and a set of Yiddish and Hebrew sources from the World War I era and the immediate post-war years, and I'll use one from 1921 as my other example. First, the Arabic sources. Uh, after the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, the censorship regime in the Ottoman Empire was liberalized, and this liberalization facilitated the creation of a number of local Palestinian Arabic newspapers, for instance, Al Carmel, founded in Haifa in 1908, and Philistine, uh, founded in Jaffa in 1911. 
These newspapers were critical sources of information and opinion on events and developments in Palestine. But Palestine was also part of a broader intellectual sphere that included Syria and Lebanon in the north and Egypt in the south. And it was there in centers such as Beirut and Cairo uh, that scientific, literary, historical, and religious journals were edited to be disseminated throughout the Arabic reading world. Palestine's uh, Arab intellectuals not only read these journals, we still have uh, the originals they subscribed to and read on the shelves of uh, old Jerusalem libraries like that of Al-Aqsa, where I read them, um, but uh, Palestine's intellectuals also contributed to these journals, regularly sending in articles and letters. These journals published articles on a whole range of topics, including on the Jews. And strikingly, and this is what I'll focus on here, these journals often wrote of Jews in racial terms. And I should note at the outset, um, both that this sort of racial thinking was broadly accepted in this period, especially, but not only in Europe, and that, of course, it has since largely and properly been discredited. So I'm using this language in quotation marks, but one should understand that this has been largely and properly discredited. Uh, one of the journals um, was called El Muqtataf, the Digest. That's what you see here. Uh, founded in uh, Beirut in 1876 and transported to Cairo in 1885. One of the editors of El Muqtataf was a man named Shahin Makarius, a Christian Arab from the Marjayun region of today's Lebanon. In 1904, Makarius published a book called Tarikh al-Israelin, the history of the Israelites, or the history of the Jews. Um, at the opening of that book, Makarius explains that most scholars say that mankind, I quote here, is divided into four branches to which all sects and generations may trace their origins. Their evidence, the scholar's evidence of this division is found, um, is the differences that exist in moral, intellectual, and physical qualities. These four branches are the Caucasian, Mongolian, Negroid, and Malay. Makarius identifies the Jews as Semites, who in turn are one of the three main groups of Caucasians, he writes, the most advanced of the races. Civilization, Makarius explains, is, quote, indebted to the Caucasian race as to no other for the way it has developed. Of course, Jews are just one constituent group among the Semites in this racial view of humanity. Among uh, another group of uh, Semites are Makarius's fellow Arabs. Jews and Arabs, asserts Makarius, are of one species and one race. Jins wahid, wafara wahid. For Makarius and uh, some other prominent Arab intellectuals of the day, the supposed racial links between Jews and Arabs were not merely a matter of historic or scientific curiosity. These links were relevant. They mattered right now. Let me explain how they mattered by sharing with you a text from a 1913 article in El Muqtataf called The Jews in France. The author explains 
uh, the purpose of writing this extended piece on the history of French Jewry as follows. Our purpose in uh, publishing these lines is for Easterners to, uh, to see that a group of them, a group of Easterners, i.e. the Israelites, or the Jews, who immigrated to Europe and settled France, France, which is the mother of the sciences and arts and civilization, they, these Jews, matched or even surpassed the French in every pursuit. Given this, says the author, we do not know how the Europeans can claim that the European excuse me, that the Eastern mind, we don't know how the Europeans can claim that the Eastern mind is inferior to the Western mind and that if an Easterner were to compete with a Westerner with equal means, the Westerner would prevail. In other words, the success of Jews in France is the success of Easterners. Indeed, even Jews who had converted to Christianity have Eastern blood. They have Eastern blood and are of the Semitic race, insists this Al-Muqtataf author. And the explicit implication is that the Jews, excuse me, is that if the Jews can be so successful, even more than Europeans, so can the Arabs. If researching this topic does nothing more writes the author, then convince the readers of their natural ability as an Eastern people who are not prevented from reaching the highest ranks of the advanced nations, such a result, concludes the author, would be more than enough. Okay. If Makarius and Al-Muqtataf portrayed the Jews as model Semites or even as model Arabs, as he writes in another section, some Zionist ideologues were at the very same time engaged in a parallel pursuit, formulating racial genealogical theories that conceived of certain Arabs as ideal Jews, even as ideal Zionists. I first came across this phenomenon in my research in uh, the Israel State Archives, uh, where I, found a, I came upon a small booklet uh, published just after World War I, about the Arabs of Palestine called Hatinua Arvit, the, the, the Arab movement. In this text, the author divides the Palestinian Arabs into several different categories and assists that the Bedouin are the only element in Palestine that is, quote, of pure Arab racial origin. But who then are the Felachim, the Felachim, those peasant farmers who account accounted then for the vast majority of the residents of early 20th century Palestine. The Felahim, the Zionist author writes, are the descendants of the laborers of the land who remained in Palestine from before the Islamic conquest. And the Hebrew writer continues remarkably, the primary source of this agricultural settlement was the ancient Jewish agricultural settlement. This community Certainly absorbed, he writes, a mix of blood from all of the conquerors of Palestine who left their traces within it. However, he continues, the core of the present agricultural settlement has its source in the Felahim, Jews and Samaritans, the people of the land, who then and always remained connected to the land and did not go into exile. During the Christian rule, he writes, they ultimately accepted, if 
only in appearance, Christianity, and after the Islamic conquest, they accepted Islam, though the author asserts Islam has, quote, not fully penetrated into them even until the present day. Rather, they have a mix of customs, Muslim, Jewish, uh, Christian, um, and Canaanite altogether. Those seemingly Muslim peasants, this Zionist argues, are not Arab or even Muslim beneath the surface, neither in racial origin nor, nor even in faith. This Zionist author I've been referring to was not just any old Zionist. It was, as you see here, Yitzhak ben Svi, a labor Zionist leader already in the Ottoman period and a man who would become the second president of the state of Israel. Moreover, this small booklet was not the first time Ben Svi had articulated this theory, and he was not alone. During the First World War, actually this one wasn't even the beginning, but this is a fascinating case of it. During the First World War, while living in New York, Ben Svi and his labor Zionist comrade, you might have heard of him, David Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, co-wrote a book about the land of Israel in Yiddish. Eretz Yisrael in Vergangenheit und Gegegenwort, in which together uh, they made the same assertions. The political interests that might have informed and motivated this theory are, we might say, clear enough. If the majority of the seemingly Muslim Arab population of Palestine is in fact Jewish in ethnic or racial origin, the Zionist project instantly achieved demographic feasibility. What intrigues me, however, about this theory is not the politics that, may have, that might have been underlying it, but especially as a pair with the al Muqtataf articles we just saw, what it suggests about these Zionist encounter with the Arabs of Palestine. Ben Svi glanced at his Arab neighbors not the more politically conscious Christians and Muslims in the cities, but the peasants working the land, and found not merely hidden Jews, but, as I've said, in a sense, ideal Jews, the prototypes of the treasured new Hebrew, those who had never abandoned the land of Israel and never stopped tilling its soil, and who weren't overly concerned with religion, whichever one it happens to be. In seeking to understand the Arabs of Palestine, to study their history and their society, Ben Svi uses a theory of race and genealogy, and using that theory, comes to the radical conclusion that these are the real Jews. I should note that on the one hand, this is an indication of respect for and acceptance of the connection of Arabs to Palestine. And on the other hand, of course, it's a respect based on a redefinition of the other that was quite different from the self-definition of that other. Okay. Having considered these three sets of sources, the first, Yusuf Dia al-Khalidi's letter to uh, the chief rabbi, Rabbi Khan, and to Herzl, on the one hand, and Yitzchak Epstein's um, hidden question. The second, Eliezer ben Yehuda's interview uh, with Muhammad Ruhi al-Khalidi, and third, um, Arabic intellectual journals like Al-Muqtatath and Ben-Gurion and Ben-Svi's theory of the uh, origins of the Fellahin. 
Let's take a few minutes uh, now to consider what we have learned about the early Arab Zionist encounter and what it might also tell us about today's conflict. Uh, let me pose or propose three central takeaways here. The first concerns history and historical legitimacy. At the opening stages of the encounter between Zionists and Arabs in Palestine, there were voices, not marginal voices, but mainstream, important, influential ones, even if they weren't the only ones, that took for granted and even respected their new neighbor's links to the Holy Land, even if those voices still opposed their neighbor's political ambitions. In other words, historical denial and mutual delegitimization need not be regarded as the natural, inevitable, or eternal condition in the Zionist Arab or Israeli-Palestinian encounter. This is not to suggest that an honest view of history and a mutual sense of legitimacy will necessarily produce the political outcomes one might wish to see in the Holy Land. But what does seem clear is that a disregard for the other's history and an insistence on the other's illegitimacy can only exacerbate the conflict. The other two takeaways also concern the fact that many Israelis and Palestinians tend to view one another today very differently from the way um, some of their respective predecessors viewed their counterparts a century earlier. And I allude to the last two takeaways in the subtitle of the book, Defining Neighbors. That is religion, race, and the early Zionist Arab encounter. First, race. Many Arabs and Jews in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as we've seen, thought of one another as racial relatives, and that relatedness mattered. It led at least some to look at their counterparts with pride or as potential partners in a joint enterprise. Of course, I wouldn't recommend the resuscitation of rightly discredited and, as we saw clearly in the mid-20th century, earlier and later as well, dangerous, unethical, and ultimately deadly race theories. Right? I'm not recommending returning to those. But it is important to acknowledge that something was lost with the demise of that perspective. And it may be worthwhile to consider whether there might be healthy approaches each side could have toward the other that would fill in the positive gaps those discredited theories left behind. Ways of seeing commonality uh, with one's purported others and even enemies. And finally, religion. As we saw, Ruhi al-Khalidi's uh, Arabic manuscript on Zionism understands the Jewish nationalist movement through the lens of religion. Zionism, as I highlighted, was particularly threatening to Palestine's Arabs in al-Khalidi's perspective precisely because of the Holy Land's centrality in Judaism. In texts that I didn't have the opportunity to discuss here, but that I analyze in detail in the book, Many Zionists also viewed their neighbors in religious terms, as Muslims and Christians, and distinguished between them accordingly. They imagined, and this might not sound intuitive 
uh, in contemporary discourse, but just listen. They imagine Muslims to be naturally sympathetic to Zionism because of what they perceived as Islam's inherent tolerance, while they, the Zionists understood Christians to be their inherent enemies because of, as one Zionist author put it in a Hebrew newspaper from the period, because of Christianity's hatred of Judaism. What this suggests is that the prominent role of religion in the contemporary Palestinian-Israeli encounter is not an entirely new aberration to an encounter that was previously conceived in wholly secular terms, as we often read um, in popular press. Now, suddenly, this encounter is understood in religious terms, and that's very dangerous. No, this isn't an aberration. But we also see here that religion is not inherently, unavoidably, and always a force of separation and conflict, but can, can, under the right conditions, also serve to unify disparate religious groups. Okay, those were the three takeaways. But before I conclude, we must ask, if the various sides of the Arab Zionist encounter were able to acknowledge each other's historical claims and sense of legitimacy, even as they oppose their counterparts' political positions and ambitions, what happened since then? How did the parties reach the point of mutual delegitimization and denial where they find themselves today? How come the Arab states who drafted the UNESCO resolution couldn't refer to the Haram al-Sharif's Jewish sanctity alongside its Muslim sacredness, as Ruhi al-Khalidi did a hundred years earlier? Or how could it be that, as uh, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz recently reported, that the Jerusalem municipality's official tourism map could find room for three biblical or Jewish names for that same area, Har Habayit, the Moriah Mount, and Temple Mount, as it's listed there, but couldn't, until an outcry, squeeze in uh, its Arabic Islamic name, Al-Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary. What has happened? Tracing and accounting for these changes are a subject of other lectures, ones that would bring us from the late Ottoman period uh, I've discussed today through the three decades of British mandatory rule in Palestine and into the post-1948 post-1967, and finally the post-Oslo era of today. Put most simply, though, as the encounter between Zionists and Arabs transformed into a violent conflict, it apparently and understandably became more difficult for either side to acknowledge the other's history and legitimacy. Complexity and nuance are in short supply when one feels one's life is threatened. But the violence is only part of the story. The World War I era that brought uh, the end of the Ottoman, as well as the Habsburg and Russian empires, was one in which nations and nationalism were regarded as the appropriate, legitimate foundations of statehood. 
Remember, the global interstate institution created in this period was the League of Nations. This is one of the reasons Palestine's Arabs and their supporters were so enraged by the now 99-year-old Balfour Declaration, which, if you can see it, referred to the Jews in national terms, while the Arabs named simply the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine were accorded civil and religious rights only. When the League of Nations granted the Palestine mandate to the British, it incorporated the Balfour Declaration, this text, into the mandatory document and also instructed the British as the mandatory power to safeguard, quote, the civil and religious rights of now all the inhabitants of Palestine, irrespective of race and religion, end quote. Irrespective of race and religion. This phrase, irrespective of race and religion, which I discuss in the conclusion of my book, is important because I think it set the terms of legitimate differentiation for the conflict. Nationhood, the League of Nations implied, legitimately mattered in defining groups. Religion and race could not or could no longer. Along with the violence, World War I, in this sense, produced a new discourse, which, whether for good or ill, changed the way the people of Palestine conceived of one another. Or at least it changed the way they were allowed to articulate their conceptions of one another. Now, a century later, the conflict continues. I hope that this look back at the conflict's earliest years offers some hope. Not because we have come across some lost utopia that can be recovered, but rather because we see the ways in which the terms of the encounter have evolved and changed over time that this conflict is not stagnant or timeless, that its present features were not preordained or eternal. Things have changed, if we must admit, generally for the worse. But it is that recognition of the reality of change that gives hope that, with creativity and goodwill, change for the better is possible as well. Thank you so much. Jonathan, thank you very much. Um, we have time for some questions. Um, would anyone like to uh, raise a question? Now, in order to do this, you have to come up here um, to Nikki, who is right here, and she has a handheld microphone. But remember, we all have positions. Um, and what we want, however, to, is to hear from him, right? So we want to ask questions, right? Is that good? So we'll all, we'll all uh, stay with that. We want to interrogate Jonathan. So, sir, go ahead. Okay. Did you um, see in, in comparing the last 30 years, let's say, to 100 years ago, a difference in the common perception the less informed, not the political leadership, not the intellectual leadership, 
but the man in the street and woman in the street perception of the problem. Great. Uh, thank you so much. Shall, shall I respond one at a time? Okay. Um, so the, the, the question is um, man on the street. Uh, what did people think then? What do people think now or in the past few decades? So I should uh, begin by saying that the work that I did um, in, in this project is a work of intellectual history, um, which means an elitist form of history. Right? I, I, was, I wasn't studying the man on the street. Um, I was studying what um, the texts tell us. And texts, um, at least in those days, um, you know, before Twitter, um, were, uh, were elitist um, documents for the most part. Um, and so I, I, I don't have a good sense um, of... Um, exactly how generalizable the um, uh, the conclusions that I that I make here for intellectual the intellectual encounter on the elite level um, apply to the masses. Um, so I, I, I should open with that. Um, with regard to to the present, um, there's a significant change on the intellectual level, um, and it it's one that is. Um, in some ways, very disheartening because you have um, on the elite, elite intellectual political level um, much less of a sense of a willingness to um, uh, to think in meaningful ways about the sincerity of the claims of the other. On the popular level, um, among um, both sides, uh, it's it's impossible to take away um, the force. Of um, of violence um, in uh, the way that these peoples perceive one another in a way that um, one just didn't have in the in the late Ottoman period. There were clashes, very localized um, uh, violence in the late Ottoman period, but it wasn't on on mass scale and and it wasn't televised. Um, and um, the the way that you know, people on the street perceive one another these days. Um, is uh, through the lens of, of uh, largely, I, I would say, uh, through the lens of, uh, of, of a violent encounter. And so that means through the lens of fear. Um, and that is, is quite different. Um, there was you know, a sense of tension, a sense for, uh, of competition in the late Ottoman period. But on the mass level, it, it wasn't yet a sense of, of this, uh, this uh, um, extreme fear of violence uh, that, that one has now. And that's a, that's a big difference. I enjoyed the lecture very much. Thank you so much. Uh, my four grandparents were Sephardic Jews born in the Ottoman Empire. And, um, Where in the Ottoman Empire? Saloniki. <laughs> and... Um, I once asked my grandfather, how come we seem to be the only people who pined for Turkish rule? Everybody else hated them. And my, my grandfather said, well, the Greeks and the Armenians, the Turks had taken their country, and, but we had no country. All we wanted was religious freedom, so we were very happy. So I was wondering, um, I think before the Zionist movement, the majority of Jews in Palestine were Sephardic, and I was wondering what their attitude was towards the Zionists. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was hoping that someone would ask um, because a, a, a big chunk of the book uh, relates to um, those distant ancestors of, of, of yours or their relatives. Um, 
um, of Sephardic Jews, because you're quite right uh, that the Jewish community in Palestine, uh, the elite of it, the leadership of it, um, and also its large numbers, but until the 19th century were indeed Sephardic Jews. Um, Jews, um, um, Middle Eastern Jews, Arabic-speaking, and also Ladino-speaking Jews. Um, so it, it's a complicated question. Uh, it's one of, about which there's a lot of really interesting recent scholarship um, on the place of um, Ottoman Jews, of, of, of Arab Jews, of Arabic-speaking Jews, um, of Mizrahim. These are all terms that one hears um, and what one reads about in the, the explosion of, um, of excellent scholarship on this period um, in, in recent years. Um, the the, the the short answer, I would say, um, is that there were elements of that community uh, that was deeply engaged in the Zionist movement. Um, and uh, they had a, uh, a newspaper uh, that uh, that community edited, uh, a, a Jerusalem-based newspaper. Some of uh, the sources that I referred to um, in passing over the course of this talk were from one of those newspapers, Hachirut, uh, which one... Uh, when I was doing the research, one had to find on microfilm, but now I think one can find them online. Um, um, but it's, it's an amazing set of sources um, that Hachirud offers for us, um, which is an Ottoman uh, Sephardic-edited uh, Hebrew um, newspaper uh, based in Jerusalem that was uh, a Zionist newspaper. And the question is um, that that scholars have been thinking about recently is to what extent their Zionism was distinct from um, uh, Ashkenazic Zionism, and I think um, we're still working that out. Um, there are elements of it. I mean, on the one hand, let, let, let's just think together about why it might be different. Um, these were. Natives, uh, natives of the Middle East, if not natives of Palestine. Uh, they were people who uh, largely spoke Arabic, if not as their native language, at least as their second language, if Ladino was their first. Uh, these were people who had been living in the Middle East and their ancestors had been living in the Middle East for some centuries. Um, so one might imagine that they would have a different version of a different interpretation of Zionism from those who had no contact previously, whose ancestors um, had no contact previously with Arabs, at least for, for many centuries. Um, and so there was a sense, and I think in the, um, this is what the scholarship is, is leading us toward, that um, there was a, a, a deeper sense of understanding of, of the other, and maybe it wasn't always understood as the other, but uh, with uh, Arabs living in Palestine, because they were able to communicate with them, they were able to read their texts, they were able to even participate in their journalism. Um, so um, there was some difference, but um, I think that we have to be a little cautious about it um, because oftentimes, um, though they were able to engage in the discourse of, um, of, of Arabic and, and with, uh, with Arabs, uh, their political ambitions were not always all that different um, from their Ashkenazic um, Zionist neighbors. And so I, 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 that's a long answer to your question, but I hope it, it gives you some sense um, of uh, the recent scholarly work on that subject. Jonathan, I'd like to thank you very, very much. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.